Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Have you joined EMDA's new initiative called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC? Learn more at paltc.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. So I wanted to take this time to once again thank you for joining our FAMDA Journal Club. Today we are going to talk about long haulers. And so I want to start where we have started in the past, um, talking about the state of the state. Then we're going to go through some research and clinical highlights. And we were we had a couple of um, of our members from our task force send in some case reviews to discuss. So hopefully we'll have a lively conversation and we can um, go ahead and get started. And if you want, Jackson, you could go to the next slide for me. So wanted to take a look at the, the data and our dashboard that we've been utilizing from um, John Hopkins. We know that we have 30, over 33 million um, cases. And unfortunately, we passed the 600,000 um, mark for deaths about a, a week ago. We also know that we are still seeing a lot of, um, of cases around the world and that this virus isn't going anywhere despite the number of people who've been vaccinated. If we go to the next slide, I wanted to share with you the, the, the view of the states. And when we look at this, you know, you keep in mind, we're not getting all the state's data anymore. Um, as you can see, if you if this is not too much of an eye chart, you'll see that Florida's data is not on here. But that's because of some of the standards and reporting standards that have changed. But looking at this just from an overall view, we do see more um, states who are below the 5% um, threshold, which is a really good news as we, we are seeing openings um, um, pretty much throughout the country, especially following some announcements made back in May around masking for um, vaccinated individuals and how you can um, go without masks. We've seen a lot of um, reopening. Our seven-day moving average for positivity rates in the United States is at 2.6 um, percent. And as of yesterday, June um, 22nd, we had about um, a little over 12,300 cases, new cases for COVID. So it's not so bad. We're doing pretty well when we're thinking about it that way. When we look at the state um, level, um, if you go to the next slide for me, Florida um, has been doing um, relatively well as, as well. Our positivity rate, um, this is through June 17th, was at 3.3%. Um, we are seeing more individuals um, complete the series of vaccinations, so that is very encouraging. Um, unfortunately, not universal throughout our nursing facilities. And there's still a lot of opportunity, but you know, very encouraging signs. When we look even further 
at the COVID vaccinations in the United States. If you advance to the next slide for me, um, what we are finding is that um, we are over 300, um, actually over yeah, 300 million um, vaccines being administered. While that does not get us to that um, lofty goal that we, we were trying to obtain of 70% um, back in, um, I think that it was part of the Biden administration to get up to 70% by July 4th. Does it look like we're gonna actually get there? Um, we'll probably be a little short of that, but we do see 65% um, of adults having at least one um, vaccination with, um, you know, which is good news. If we go to the next slide, wanted to just take a moment and highlight um, the fact that we are still seeing a lot of variants. The UK variant, which is the B117, is still the most predominant variant that we have out there, but we have seen um, more cases in the United States of B1617.2, which is the, the Delta variant, um, which originated in uh, India. So I believe um, headlines broke where, where we were seeing about 10% of those cases, um, new cases be the Delta variant, and it is um, growing at a pretty rapid, um, spreading at a pretty rapid rate. It is now a variant of concern. It is something that we have to be mindful of, especially given the fact that we are seeing some states that have very low vaccination rates compared to the rest of the country. If you go to the next slide, what I want to spend um, the majority of our time talking about is long haulers. And when we are looking, um, we're going to stay here for one moment. When we're looking at long haulers, what I really want to make sure we're defining appropriately, and we're going to talk a little about this a little bit later, is what, what that means. Um, about a year ago, uh, during the still the height of the pandemic, we saw that this condition was being um, described um, in, in a lot of testimonials from patients. Um, it made its way through a lot of the social media platforms and found itself on the mainstream media. And we were describing this as long COVID. And, and there are videos and testimonials on um, YouTube and um, that were written up in, in other journals where we started describing this long COVID and, and the fact that we were seeing persistent symptoms in, in patients who had recovered from COVID. So they may have continued to have headaches and they may have continued to have trouble with breathing or feeling that fatigue, which were the most, some of the more common um, findings. Back in um, June, July, um, August, there was a lot of skepticism around this um, from the medical community, a lot of questions, which, which um, we, we definitely needed to ask. And we started seeing it even being reported in our medical communities um, with our nurses and our doctors who had recovered from, from this infection. When it all settled, we saw that about 10%, a little over 10% of the patients who had survived COVID were experiencing 
um, these persistent symptoms. Um, reports came in about the persistent shortness of breath um, three months following their um, diagnosis, fevers and bouts of fatigue and headaches. And we started even noting as we started tracking this um, that these cases were occurring even for those individuals who had mild or asymptomatic COVID. So it became um, very interesting. And, and if we go to the next slide, you know, the NIH um, earlier this year um, announced that it was going to now start really looking at um, these long term um, symptoms, anything over that between that four to six month um, and longer um, period because we wanted to understand how long do these symptoms um, linger and what is the, uh, the effect on quality of life and um, in the, the recovery as a whole. So back in May, um, this announcement came back out in February, and back in May, it was announced that they are actually, the NIH is actually starting its own um, study where they're really looking at how, how to um, make sense of all of this and what does this mean for the long-term recovery of, of COVID. So it's an interesting space because we, we've talked so much about the other metrics, about acute hospitalizations, and um, um, we, we've shared a lot around um, how many people are died, but you know, there's a lot of conversation that needs to be had around how do we rehab individuals? What are we seeing um, in um, both the outpatient um, community and as well as the post-acute long-term care community? I wanna start though with some of the research. So if we go first, yes, thank you, Jackson, to the Lancet. This looked at the six month consequences of COVID in patients discharged from hospitals. And the background for this study um, really states that they were that they were trying to understand the the symptomatology that happens um, six months post um, being uh, being negative for um, COVID following a hospital stay. Um, they wanted to investigate disease severity and any risk factors. And so they did this cohort study, and this was based off of um, out of um, Wuhan. So they looked at all of these patients and what they were finding is that of um, about the 2,400 um, discharged patients that they were looking at, over 1,700 people were still complaining of um, symptoms. Those symptoms range from fatigue, muscle weakness, um, and sleep um, difficulties, and a lot of um, complaints around anxiety and depression and, and those kind of things as well. What we also were able to see is that um, even after this period, those complaints um, were still being present. And so it was, it was really interesting when you think about how long we're seeing um, these findings. And they were able to look at other studies and still see that there was an impact to the, to the overall quality of life, um, an impact to what they were seeing when we were trying to have people um, exercise and and even when those studies the 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 studies such as a ct scan or um, radiographic studies with chest x-ray even when they did not show any lingering um, um, findings 
they still saw that people were complaining of shortness of breath or, or having um, persistent coughing and some of those other um, symptoms were still um, persisting. So that was a pretty interesting um, study and it, it made me wanna go back and look at um, the, the things that we do know about COVID. And if you advance to the next slide, this is something that I think we're pretty much very much aware of. Um, the now uh, cytokine storm that um, we all talk about with this condition, um, that acute hyperinflammatory response that can impact multiple organ systems. And um, it's, it was par partly the hallmark of this condition, the fact that it was impacting so many different systems um, from the lungs to the, the, the GI system, the, the neurological system. And as we discussed at our last journal club, we were even seeing skin manifestations at that time. So we know that we are seeing a multitude of different systems being impacted in real time during the acute phase of, of this condition. Um, the reports of thromboembolic disease, um, vasculitis, uh, especially in the multi-system, multi-inflammatory um, conditions that we saw with um, children were really um, well noted and documented. And that pathophysiology they, um, all went back to the fact um, that um, of this cytokine storm. So it, it makes us realize, I think, that there was gonna be some long-term impact um, when we're looking at the way we recover. So I don't think that's um, at all surprising. But when we're trying to understand the, the chronic component of COVID, and um, there's like a thousand and one names for long um, um, COVID or, or long haulers, you know, there, there's some interesting um, assumptions being that were being made early in, in the course of this pandemic. If you advance to the next slide, um, this is um, from um, a neuroscience journal, and they were really looking at what happens after you've um, had COVID, how do we transition to chronic COVID, and um, what are the possible theories? So they this um, study, Neuroscience Journal, it really looked at the neurological um, syndrome seen in long haulers, and it asked the question um, if there is an underlying degeneration or is this secondary to low-grade inflammation? Or could there possibly be cellular degeneration um, in, in at the, the neurological um, in the nervous system? It also asked if this was um, secondary to vascular effects with um, um, endothelial um, inflammatory markers being noted. So it's interesting that we're already back in this was published back in December of 2020, but really early on, we were already trying to figure out what is causing these um, long-term effects that we're seeing, which uh, we, we started calling brain fog and dizziness and um, inability to concentrate, you know, what could be um, behind all of that. So if we look at what we um, now know about the pathogenesis, there are still um, reports um, you know, that we, we still don't have all the answers. It's really multifactorial. It is um, thought to be secondary to prolonged inflammation or in an immune-mediated vascular dysfunction. Um, there's also 
um, the, the concerns around the nervous system dysfunction and thromboembolism, and all of these things are going into giving us this post-COVID syndrome. So there's still a lot of things that we don't know about what's actually happening. One um, particular approach though, it's when we are now looking back at some of, of, of our patients and looking at those case examples. There are a lot of great case um, studies out there in different journal articles. Most of them are either editorials or a part of like a research letter. But it, it is interesting to see when you, um, and looking back, just how far we've come in our understanding of what's happening. One um, such article was from JAMA and it appeared in their open network. And it was looking at the sequela of adults at six months. So if you go to, yeah, thank you. Um, after the COVID-19 infection. And this was interesting because it, we had talked so much about what happens to those um, people who are hospitalized um, with severe disease, expecting that they were going to have uh, a lot of um, issues following um, following that recovery, you know, we, we anticipated that, but this study really looked at um, those individuals in the outpatient setting because um, they felt that it wasn't being, that they weren't really being captured or well characterized. And it focused on um, individuals who were 110 days out. And then they took a subset of those individuals who were hospitalized versus those who were not and just looked at um, what we were seeing. As we looked through, um, we were able to find that, um, you know, individuals with this were complaining of symptoms that had persistent symptoms, um, even for six and nine months following um, the illness. Um, they found that approximately 30% reported persistent symptoms. Um, those individuals who were treated as an outpatient had mild disease, and yet um, one third of them were still complaining or stating that they had persistent symptoms. Um, and this really makes us have to take a moment to take a step back because earlier in the pandemic, we were like, if you have mild symptoms, you're going to recover, no, no issues, but we're still seeing people who are with complaints of GI symptoms and um, brain fog and headaches and bouts of fatigue, even with mild um, disease. And we saw in this study, even a few individuals who had asymptomatic um, disease still reporting that their quality of life had worsened, that they were um, easily fatigued. Um, so a lot of interesting information from here. If we advance to the next slide, there was another study that came out in the nature in nature medicine um, that talked about post-acute um, COVID-19 syndrome and really with the, the, the goal to look at the pathophysiology and um, the organ specific um, effects that um, we're seeing for individuals who have this um, prolonged um, these. And now a word from our sponsor, US Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At US Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. 
We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. If we go to um, the next slide, this is also, and I apologize for all the eye charts, but I thought this was a great graphic because of the way it demonstrates the, the trajectory of um, disease in that timeline. So we know that um, the acute phase of COVID, it usually lasts about um, three to four weeks from the onset of symptoms. Um, and beyond that, that's really that post-acute um, um, period. And what we're defining as post-acute COVID symptoms are persistent symptoms beyond that four-week mark um, that are either delayed or long-term complications of, um, the, the, of COVID. So what we're seeing is that um, there are, not only do we see problems with at um, the musculoskeletal system with fatigue and muscular weakness, joint pain, and overall, um, reports of decline in quality of life. Um, at the respiratory system, we have individuals reporting persistent cough, um, dyspnea, and um, occasionally persistent oxygen requirement. Neurologically, um, we've seen um, an increase in the anxiety and depression, but also is sleep disturbances, cognitive disturbances, and headaches. And then there have been reports um, when we look at the cardiac system of um, palpitations to the point where people are now being medicated for those palpitations and as well as atypical chest pain. Um, there are also cases where we are now seeing individuals who are in this post-acute um, phase have um, blood clots, DVTs, um, impairment further impairment of renal, renal impairment, if they were normal, you may see them like now um, with chronic, with what we would call chronic kidney disease and some even advanced to end-stage renal disease. And then, um, you know, there were also reports of the skin manifestations as we discussed um, 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 the last journal club, we, we were seeing skin manifestations. This study really highlighted the fact that we were seeing hair loss at week 12, as some six months later, there were still these complaints. So it's really interesting to, to just get that, that timeline um, down and the fact that we're still seeing um, these issues as we're moving into that, that phase where we would probably be trying to rehabilitate a patient in, in our facilities or at, with home health care or in other um, aspects. And you, you, you start seeing that there are still some prolonged effects. You know, this study, I also like that they really talked about the fact that if we're going to get in front of this, or treat it, we have to approach it from an interdisciplinary um, approach. And if you advance to the next slide, they talked about that um, multidisciplinary collaboration that you would need to have 
um, which would involve an aggressive um, physical um, therapy programs, um, getting any other disciplines who need to be involved, involved. It's just interesting, especially now that we're seeing a lot of post-COVID clinics um, being um, stood up. Um, you know, between the Mayo Clinic at John Hopkins Clinic and a lot of other in, um, places in the VA everywhere, we're seeing that there's a, a bigger emphasis being placed on how to deal with these post-COVID um, um, symptoms. If we keep going, just wanted to talk about um, another study that was recently um, published in JAMA where they looked at the assessment of the frequency of variety of persistent symptoms among patients with um, um, COVID. And the objective was to review all of these studies that have been looking at um, um, these, these symptoms because there's so much um, variability between um, studies. When we are looking back through the, the hundreds or now doubt, it feels like thousands, but maybe still hundreds of studies. Um, and actually, now that I say that, I think this looked at over 1,200 um, articles were screened. <laughs> so it is thousands of case reports and studies that, that we have now access to. They wanted to um, really figure out, okay, what, where was the commonality between all of these and looking, looking at how we define these symptoms at the 30-day mark versus 60 days from recovery. What they found was that um, it was very common to see symptoms persist beyond that acute phase of infection and that there was a significant implication on health-associated um, functioning and quality of life. So if we go to the next slide, this is sort of how they categorize. And this is that you will have access to these slides. So this is um, definitely a ice chart, but it really looks at um, all of those symptoms that were being reported. And over 72.5% of those patients had at least one symptom at the 60 day mark. Um, findings um, show that even when they went out six months, they were still finding um, individuals who a significant amount, over 30% of individuals still complaining of at least one of, of um, these persistent symptoms. So in thinking about that, I also wanted to think about the other perspective because as I was trying to um, um, piece this together, it feels like forever, try to have this conversation, what I kept getting back um, from my colleagues is that we're not really seeing this in our nursing facilities. So I, I pulled the paper from JAMDA, um, if you go to the next slide, and this looked at um, the recovery from um, coronavirus disease among older adults in post-acute skilled nursing facilities. So they were really comparing those people who had come into the facility with a positive, uh, with a history of um, having COVID to those who were negative and how did they fare? And they found that um, that there were pretty much, the, the, the timeline to discharge was pretty much similar between those two populations, unless frailty was, um, um, unless the frailty score was high in those members, those patients who had COVID. So in looking at it that way, you know, it, it makes you have to just ask the question, if, is what we're seeing more frailty versus post-COVID? And it's something that I think 
we haven't yet even began to do enough um, studies to answer um, completely because we do know that um, that there are a lot of uh, manifestations with frailty and it is something that could impact multiple organ systems but what was coming first or is this um, COVID that is lingering that is now causing this person to be frail. So a lot of questions and I want to, um, you know, from this point, pivot to some case reviews. And like I said, I, I thank everyone who shared these um, case reviews um, with us because it's really interesting to, to just get a, a view of these um, patients and seeing what we're actually seeing in, in the um, community. So I want to start first with a young geriatric patient is what I called after reading this case, because it's a 52-year-old um, um, woman who has multiple comorbidities, who was being seen as an outpatient, um, history of morbid obesity, polycystic kidney disease, end-stage renal disease on dialysis, hypertension and COPD, as she was admitted to the hospital with shortness of breath, cough, and a positive COVID test. So she was discharged, um, you know, pretty early in, in her, after her diagnosis with mild shortness of breath. Um, discharged home with home health at that time um, for RN evaluation and a physical therapy evaluation. But it was interesting um, in looking at this, the, the patient was, became so debilitated that um, she had to have her, the physician visits and the nurse practitioner visits at home because she, wasn't, she was feeling that she was too weak to come to the office. One month after that discharge, she still had a cough, shortness of breath and fatigue and re was requesting more assistance at home due to weakness. So at that point, um, they did order for home health aid and, and some other um, services to be um, given in the home. At, she was hospitalized then two months later after an episode of which she stated was her feeling dizzy that resulted in a fall with um, an ankle fracture. So um, per the 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 story, the patient was outside of her dialysis um, center, felt dizzy as she was trying to walk into dialysis and had a fall and um, a resulted ankle fracture. Upon discharge from that hospital stay, um, she also went home with home health care. Um, she refused to go to a nursing facility um, at that time. And when she returned home, the home health nurse um, who did an evaluation within, uh, um, you know, the next morning. So she went home that evening, did an evaluation that next morning, which was very wonderful for um, a home health visit. Noted skin lesions and a macular rash on her chest and um, on her breast. And she was sent back to the hospital. And at that time, she had persistent coughing. She was also experiencing confusion. This then resulted, and I just put the highlights here, this then resulted in um, multiple hospitalizations where this patient was um, treated for uh, two to three weeks in the hospital and then um, was readied and, and got to the point where she could go back home with home health. 
and would end up bouncing back into the hospital because her family felt that they that they couldn't provide care. Um, the reports that per what was written is that the family kept expressing that she was um, having these bouts of confusion where she did not know where she was at. And that was very much different from her baseline. So where we're now are at now um, over eight months um, status post her diagnosis is that she is now hospitalized again and there is a consult pending for hospice. And I just thought that was interesting because when you go back to the history, even with all those comorbidities, this was an individual who had been quite active. She enjoyed going to the gun range every Sunday morning, apparently. And um, she um, was able to do certain tasks without any assistance at home. And we just saw this progressive decline in her condition following um, um, her COVID-19 diagnosis. I'm gonna pause there and go to the next case. And this case is a 62-year-old um, woman who was in the long-term care facility. So she's an African-American woman with a past medical history of diabetes, strokes, um, chronic kidney disease, stage three, morbid obesity, hypertension, heart failure, COPD, and rheumatoid arthritis. And she was noted to be positive in the facility. Um, they did not need to transfer her out because um, she was having mouse symptoms at the time of diagnosis. And um, they moved her to the COVID unit um, in the facility. At that point, the patient started having um, respiratory difficulties, um, went into acute respiratory failure, it was transferred out to the hospital. Now from there, she um, had um, she had several interventions in which she I think um, they report that she was on BiPAP and she was treated and um, stabilized at the hospital. And when they were able to transfer her back to the facility, they um, received her. Um, she was on oxygen. She was um, on um, several antibiotics, but you know, they were able to put her in for rehab and do certain things, but they noted that her renal function had worsened yet again. So when we looked at this case, um, what was interesting is that this patient uh, um, started having worsening renal um, function and persistent shortness of breath. And upon discharge back to the facility, she was also complaining of muscle weakness. She then was transferred um, back to the um, hospital for worsening um, renal function. And at that point, this began a cycle of her being sent back and forth to the hospital um, with worsening renal function, worsening shortness of breath, heart failure, and, um, and weakness. She had to be started on dialysis, um, I believe after the second hospitalization, and her condition continued to worsen to the point where following, um, I believe the, the practitioner informed me over six hospitalizations within a, um, within a year, she now has, um, and before we go to discussion, I just wanna talk about one other case that was shared. 
And this is an 81-year-old female um, long-term care resident whose past medical history includes COPD, heart failure, atrial fibrillation, hypertension, um, status post-strokes, diabetes, and peripheral arterial disease. At baseline, this patient had mild cognitive impairments, um, normal oral intake, um, was totally dependent for transfers, and otherwise it was reported per the nursing staff that she was um, alert to her name and to her place. Uh, she was diagnosed with COVID-19 with mild symptoms, mild shortness of breath, shortness of breath, no fever, no chest pain, treated in the facility. One month later, she has significant mental and functional decline, worsening renal function, and um, poor oral intake. Now, they didn't um, state if she had lost any um, sense of smell or taste, but the question that, um, you know, the the, her disease trajectory um, suggests is that she continued to have worsening decline over the months following her diagnosis with COVID. Um, the predominant symptoms were um, worsening renal function, worsening cognitive function, muscle weakness, and um, worsening swallowing dysfunction um, to the point that she transitioned to um, hospice and um, um, subsequently passed away as well. So the question that, you know, I think that's up for discussion is whether what we're seeing with these, these cases of individuals who may initially recover and then are either presenting back to us in the office with all of their comorbidities or into the nursing facilities and having steady declines, if this could also be part of that post-COVID syndrome. And, you know, we're going to open it up to discussion in a minute, but I wanted to just redefine um, the post-COVID syndrome. So if you go to the next slide, according to what's on the CDC, we're um, highlighting fatigue, that difficulty thinking or concentrating that's been referred to as brain fog, difficulty breathing, cough, um, painful joints and um, muscle um, aches and weaknesses chest pain, depression or anxiety, headache, fever, palpitations, the loss of smell or taste and dizziness as all part of this post-COVID syndrome um, symptomatology. I would also add the rashes, hair loss, and lesions on toes, um, which we talked about on our prior um, journal club as potential um, parts of this post-COVID syndrome. And the, the reason that we're really trying to define this is because we're trying to get a better understanding of what should what we should be relating back to this um, um, these persistent lingering um, symptoms, how we should be documenting and relating all of that. I say that because um, what happened recently, and if you go to the next slide, you'll see that there is now recommendations um, that the um, World Health Organization has now added a new code to the ICD-10 um, list, um, um, code U09.9, which is for post-COVID-19 conditions. That proposal was made um, at the March um, 2021 meeting for ICD-10 um, coordin ICD coordination and management. And, um, has been accepted and you know the comment deadline window has already been closed um, is been accepted and 
what we're seeing now is that this is going to be implemented on October 1st, um, 2021. So we now have a way to really describe everything that we're seeing uh, as under a code. The question becomes is, what is it post-COVID syndrome and how are we actually looking at it and defining that? And with that little bit of controversy, I open it up for discussion. <laughs> I see that we had some questions from um, Pam. Um, how are we differentiating between long COVID versus debilitation from having recovered from COVID in our residents? Sees if this is differentiating, maybe difficult with our patient population. And the uh, second question was, how can we differentiate between the person's innate frailty from long COVID? And I mean, those are those are both very um, interesting questions. The, from the research that I've been looking at, I think that the one thing that is interesting is, you know, when we have the frailty scores before they um, before they they develop COVID, that's always helpful because it really is hard. Um, everything that I've been reading to really differentiate if this is if this is um, worsening of the condition. We know that our patient population will get do get worse if they've had prolonged ICU stays or prolonged hospitalizations. So how do you make that differentiate that that um, differentiate you should definitely need to know what their baseline was and what's happening now. Um, um, a comment that came in, another comment was about the the psych issues that we're seeing. If at baseline before COVID, um, you know, that we were, we had no cognitive impairment and now we have significant cognitive impairment three, four months out, you know, I think you can easily say that this is probably cost secondary to that, but it, it, it really does come to knowing and understanding the baseline in my opinion. And um, if anyone else has any other opinions, I, I would love to hear. So I think as um, what we've also seen uh, to a point that Carmel raised, about the psych issues, yeah, depression and anxiety are being um, categorized as part of this post-COVID um, um, syndrome. And I think again, I can't. I don't know if it's a chicken or an egg thing. Um, I don't know how one would feel after having COVID. Fortunately, I um, have not had that experience. But it is interesting to see that there are so many um, mental um, health um, concerns. It challenges for those individuals who are um, who are now post COVID and survivals surviving COVID, um, but I don't know how to categorize that either in our patient population. I think we just need a lot more research, a lot more case studies, and from looking at everything. This is just me probably being on a high horse. I honestly did not find enough information in our journals, the ones that I probably turned to first describing what we're seeing in our nursing facilities. Um, good afternoon. Um, my name is Carmel, because like working on the long-term care, what we see uh, with our members versus like the post-COVID, how do we recognize the symptom? They are really acutely here with no recovery. And then the declining is so fast and so progressive because like we know when we used to have the nursing home members, they there, you see them, and then they are like progressing really slowly. 
conceal something. But now with the COVID, acutely they progress rapidly and then it's consistent with weight loss. The muscle weakness still there doesn't go away. And then they are like more prone for more infection. And then you do the checks x-ray and then they are like, okay, the checks x-ray is showing you patchy density instead of it saying like a pneumonia or versus like a actal ecstasis. So it's more likely when you know your patient and then when you know what you used to do for that patient, it's really like uh, you will see the decline. It's like acute and then fastly progressing versus like the slow progression. They are not eating and then you want to do this you want to put them on a restorative. You, even though you're using the skill therapy, put them on speech, physical therapy, they don't, go, they don't come back. With the COVID, it's like they stay in where they are. That's, That's what I noticed. So my question back to you, Carmel, would be how do we, have you seen any cases where you've been able to successfully rehab those individuals at that point? Uh, I will say it's really, uh, really rare, but like with the vaccine now, we do see, like with the vaccine, we see that the changes because like uh, prior to the vaccine, it was like, well, what are we going to do if the person get another COVID? Um, if the person is tested again for COVID and then some of them, they are tested twice or three times. Um, and then some of them, they are positive for COVID twice prior to the vaccine. So with the vaccine, we see some relief, but it depends on the chronic comorbidity that the patient has that's going to take a toll on that person. And like you said, we need to do more research to really find out where are we and then what's going to continue to be doing. And then not only that, for us as healthcare provider, providers, everybody notices it because like the lack of staff that we have in uh, post-COVID. So we are like, okay, Let's go ahead and try to do that now on our, um, our sector. We're trying to just go ahead and hydrate our members because like during COVID, nobody was offering the fluid. And then um, now when we look at them and then with the kidney that you mentioned that uh, on both of your case studies, we saw like the uh, worsening on kidney function. Those patients are so weak. They cannot even drink the cup of water they put at the bedside. So there's a lot of research we still need has to do to just go ahead and really differentiate and then see where we're going with our um, um, nursing home population. Yeah, that's what um, I've been trying to understand more. And, and that's why, you know, if you're on this call, you have cases, the more cases that we could get, the more we can understand and compare what is working and what isn't working, it would be helpful. I've um, now seen that there are, there are, are um, webinars coming up um, from that physical therapy, therapy perspective on what they're doing and um, looking forward to, to engaging in those platforms because the getting them to a point where you're strengthening them is where I think is the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity. Um, to the question about um, foggy brain and muscle weakness, what I've seen as far as um, treatment um, plans has all been around um, increasing exercise and um, physical therapy. 
Um, I've not seen any information on um, treating with any medical interventions in, in the geriatric population, um, the post-acute long-term care geriatric population. So the, the question I think that um, we also need to be addressing as we're documenting um, and um, to the point that was made earlier, uh, I would highly recommend documenting what you, what, where your patient was at their baseline um, pre-COVID and um, when, you're, when you're talking about any post-COVID symptoms, if you, once that code goes live, if we start utilizing it um, in our um, facilities, make sure you are also looking at what manifestation you're seeing. So if it's um, shortness of breath or, or chronic dyspnea, you code for that as well as the um, post-COVID. And if, like I said, if we could get more write-ups, I think it would be uh, very helpful. I, um, I do agree to the person who just sent me the message about falls. We are seeing many more falls, um, many more injuries, and we, we really need to, I think, talk more about this in our, um, in our space. You know, how, do, how are we treating these individuals? Now, with that, I don't know if anyone else has any other comments, any other um, things to bring up, but um, I want to just uh, say, um, and we could advance to the next slide, um, Jackson. I want to just say thank you to everyone. Uh, this, um, you know, doing these sessions uh, throughout this past um, year, which feels like 10 years, has been really amazing. We will be returning to our monthly sessions starting in July, and so look for that announcement. Um, this doesn't stop our conversations about COVID. There's so much more to talk about, so much more to do. Um, um, we just won't need to devote some of that time to doing those things. So we will still be here. We will still be doing Journal Club. We will still be having discussions. Our library will still stay active, and we thank you all for joining us uh, since um, gosh, March of last year. Um, I'm now going to turn everything over to um, Tanya Masterson, who's going to um, introduce our product theater. And I, I do thank you all for your time today. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club.